Corinthians 16, Paul begins by saying this. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, he says, Now concerning the offering, or concerning your giving, or when it comes to money, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And so we have started this series called When It Comes to Money, a little sub-series um, in, in this book of First Corinthians, where we've been able to talk about this area of our lives that honestly we talk about too little. Because we have separated it and kind of sanitized it and removed it from every other part of our lives. Specifically, removing it from our worship of God, our relationship with God. Our, you know, it's almost the thing that when you pray for finances, you almost feel a little guilty. Can I pray about my finances? Can I talk to God about my finances? That's, that's maybe an indication that you haven't allowed God into your finances. That you haven't considered everything in your life as existing for the glory of God. And so we think that everything else that we do belongs to God or everything, we, we would claim that we are Christians and believers and we're committed to God, but then we conduct our finances as if there is no God. We almost become Christian atheists in this way. We express a belief in God, but when it comes to our finances, we live as if there is no God, as if He doesn't exist, as if it's all up to us. And what the series has been about has really been, uh, this little sub-series on money, has really been talking about our hearts, really talking about our worship and, and whether or not we live with the reality of God in mind, whether or not we structure our lives as if God is real. The Bible says to anyone who comes to God, they must believe that He is, that He exists, that He's real, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And so we don't want the fi our finances to be one area that we have excluded from our relationship with God. We know that God has got true financial freedom for us, true worship in the area of our finances. Have you ever thought about it that way? Sometimes we see money as dirty, and generally money is if you actually got the actual cash, like you should wash your hands after you've, you've used money. But we kind of carry that over into the way that we, we approach it. It's kind of this thing that we're not allowed to include God in. But no, God actually speaks about it often in the scriptures. And as Paul comes to the church in Corinth here at the end, he, he's just so straightforward. He doesn't add any motivation here or any pep talk or any theology around money. He just says, hey, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to just set some money aside every week as you prosper, and then I'll get it when I come. Just straightforward. And this is consistent with the way of Paul's leadership. He was often very blunt. He's not going to explain it to you a hundred times. You know what it's about, just do it. And it reminds me of, of me with my own kids. If, you're, if, I have any, if there's any parents here today, you'll know what I'm talking about. But you would say certain things to them. You've explained certain values to them before. And then later on, you don't need to explain that value anymore. You just say the word. So for example, my kids, we're trying to explain to them the value of tidying up after yourself, leaving your room neat. When you take a shower, pick up the towel and hang it up. That to this, thus far has been an impossibility for me to achieve with my kids. The towels are always on the floor, but we've had this conversation. We've had this discussion. And so now I no longer come to them and say, hey boys, so understanding the value of how you take care of your environment is going to, you know, carry over into how you conduct yourself in other ways. And, and so, like, I don't explain that. 
I walk past the bedroom and I go, towels, <laughs> towels. And I hear sometimes, hopefully, yes, dad. So they know that towels means you know what it's about, just get it done. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here with the church in Corinth. He's just going, hey, church, money, you know what it's about. Let's get it done. Set it aside. I don't want a lot of logistics when I get there. It's literally all he says. And in this way, Paul almost calls us to like a level of maturity, right? It takes maturity to go, I shouldn't leave this towel here. Some of the wives are like nudging their husbands like, it's, it's still you. It's still you. You know, I saw something on the internet where somebody said, you know, it was this, this questions and answers thing. It's like, is that child really not yours? And the lady was like, yes, it's not mine. It's like, does, does the mother mind that you're raising her child for her? And she says, uh, no, she doesn't mind. And then it went on as like, so it asked all these questions and it's like, yes, because this child is my husband. Um, you know, how old is he? 37. He's my husband. I'm still trying to raise him. Some of the wives feel that way. But, but, but Paul just comes out right here and he just says, hey, church, it's time to give. He's like, we've explained this. You know this. I, if, you, if, you, if you're still sensitive in this area, if you get offended when churches talk about money, when pastors talk about money, when the Bible talks about money, if you, if you still wrestle, if you came on, you know, here this morning, maybe you're a visitor and you're like, oh no, they're speaking about money, which is probably like, uh, you know, we, I think the last time we did this was like maybe five years ago, the last time we actually had a full message. Never mind series, we've never even done one on money before because it's just not been our focus. But in that, we realized that we were actually... We were actually harming the people of God because our relationship with money is so important. If there's no direction, if there's no discipleship in this area, we will all experience hardship or heartache as a result. It's just what the Bible says. So, you know, Paul, in this way, he's kind of calling the church to a level of maturity. And I'm hoping that at Anchor Church, we can develop that maturity where we don't have to get up here and go, you know, tiptoeing around the issue of money and say, okay, you know, we know your finances are very, very precious to you. And, and we don't, you know, only if you feel like it, only if you, please, there's no, nobody's under any, you know, all those things are true. But it's like, we, we don't want to have to tiptoe around the issue because we're mature believers. We know what God calls us to. We know who we serve. We know that everything that we own belongs to God. He's the center of the universe and everything is about Him. It's for His glory. And the problem is we use our money for our own glory, for our own uh, uh, comforts and things that we desire. And that's why when we have to think about giving, it begins to threaten our autonomy in that area. We're worshiping ourselves actually and our own comforts rather than worshiping God. That's immature. But when we mature, we realize everything I have belongs to God. Help me, direct me, guide me. Holy Spirit, speak to me in how I should give. I'm ready, I'm willing to do that. And so there's a maturity there that I'm hoping we will develop as a community so that when we get up here, Will's offering message in the future is just gonna be, hey church, it's time. Money, let's do it. Right, because we know what it's about. We know what, what we're about. And so Jesus charged us as believers, not just to make converts, but to actually make disciples. He actually asked us to take people that are followers of Jesus on a learning uh, journey where they become more like Jesus and become more mature in their walk with Him. Lifelong learners and true, obedient followers of Jesus, following Him through what we believe, 
and through the culture that we embody because of our beliefs, right? You can't say you believe something if you don't act based on that belief. It means that it's not actually carrying through deep down to what you truly believe. And so in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus obviously makes this great commission, this great uh, call to all of the believers. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's a baptism Sunday coming up next Sunday. You can sign up for that. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus actually charged us not just to bring people to faith in Christ, but then to actually disciple them and teach them. And Jesus says, and surely I am with you in this process. God's involved with this process and I'm with you to the end of the age. And so what we want you to know is that your finances and speaking about it, speaking about money is a normal part of your discipleship journey. You cannot say that you've truly discipled somebody if you haven't spoken to them about their finances because it rules so much of our lives. It's something we think about. It's something we stress about. It's something that we have a relationship with, whether it's a healthy or an unhealthy relationship. All of us have some sort of relationship with money. And so I can't disciple you or teach you to obey the commandments of Jesus if I can't speak to you about your finances, if we can't speak into this area. Supply follows obedience. Supply follows obedience. You see, it's not, it's because it's faith. You know, Peter didn't get the, the assurance that the water would be able to hold his weight when he stepped out of the boat. He didn't get a document or a certificate or a scientific experiment that said, no, no, it's fine. When you step out, the water will be firm enough for you to walk on. He had to step out in order for the miracle to happen. And so many times I think that we need to take steps of faith before the supply will come. Oftentimes we want the supply before we take the step of obedience. But the question for us today is, can we trust in God? There's a supernatural supply for each of us. You don't have to be precious about money. I know that in my relationship with money, I often saw the money that I have in my hand right now or in my bank account right now as the only money I'll ever have. <laughs> have you ever thought something? I don't know if I can spend it on this because I don't know if I'll ever get money again, you know? I can't. I can't give because I'll never get any more. But it's not true. Money is actually a very fluid thing. It flows into our lives and it should flow through our lives. It should be used for kingdom purposes. We should worship God with it. And so we have this thing where we can become so precious about money, but God brings it when we need it. He supplies all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I love this occasion of the gospels that illustrates this. Um, by the way, if you're taking notes today, uh, the title of my message is Test Me in This. Test Me in This, you can write that down. But Matthew 17, verse 24, it says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay tax? You know, they're, they're, they're always looking for people to pay tax, and there was this specific tax that needed to be paid. He said, yes, and when he came, so, so Peter just says, no, no, Jesus pays tax. He doesn't know what to say, in other words. Peter doesn't have a better answer. He's like, no, no, Jesus pays the tax. Um, he, said to, he said, yes, and came into the house. Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So Jesus kind of asking the question, is it right for the son of God to pay tax to the temple that was built for him? You know, he's kind of showing Peter, the kind of the position that he's in here. 
um, from sons or from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. How many of you wish that one more time God could do this miracle? And when you're doing your tax returns and you know there's a shortfall and you know you're going to have to pay a little bit of tax in there, some provisional tax for your company or whatever it might be. And you're just like, where's my fishing rod? I'm going to go out. Jesus, do it again, Lord. Again, Lord, revival. You know, let's catch that fish and open the mouth. It's got to be a big fish. It's going to be a lot of notes in there. So, um, but you know, what I love about this is that Jesus is like, he's not bound by the system of this world. He's not bound to be taxed by, you know, uh, you know by, the, by, by the, the government of that time or for the temple or whatever. But you know what? At the end of the day, when you, there is a need, there is a supply. And do you believe this morning that God can bring that supply into your life? You know, so many of us struggle with finances. Many of us have debt. Many of us are in difficult situations when it comes to our finances. But God can bring the increase. He can bring the supply. And we are to turn to Him. So often we turn to to banks and to financial institutions and to, you know, those those that are offering loans rather than to trusting in God. But God has supply for us. So it's important for us to know that the Bible is not money neutral. It, it doesn't you know, have a neutral uh, stance when it comes to money. It actually views money as entirely spiritual. There's a spiritual aspect. There's a moral aspect. It's not separate from your spiritual life. In fact, money has the ability to reveal your true spiritual condition, what you genuinely worship what you ultimately worship. It reveals what rules your heart because it has the unique ability to fund what's important to you. How else do you fund your hobbies or your interests or your passions except through money? It has the ability to fund what's important to you. And so if we can look at how we spend our money, if we could look at how you spend your money, what would it say about what's important to you? If we could take your bank account, your bank statement this morning and put it up on screen in front of everyone, what would it say? What would it describe about where you truly find your satisfaction, your fulfillment in life? So what we actually managed to do this week is source a few bank accounts from some of our church members. Don't ask me how we did it. But we managed to get a hold of some of your bank accounts. And I thought I would just show one or two of them for a moment. All right, first up is Ryan Smith. So as you can see, what's important to Ryan is his Audi repayment, his Pirelli tires, fuel from Sassol. He pays his speeding tickets in cash. That's why they're not on here. He pays them to the cops at the time that he gets pulled over. I don't, I don't know if that's right, but apparently it's called a spot fine. He does it, making lunch for them. Um, then a lot of Krispy Kreme donuts. This is something we're going to have to talk about. Audi upgrades, Audi owners club, and some more donuts, all right? So can you see how on Ryan's bank account, it shows us what's important to him? Let's look at, uh, <laughs> let's look at Brent's. 
We found Brent, okay? There's golf at Danefern, golf at Eagle Canyon, Titleist golf balls, some more golf at Danefern, the pro shop, Danefern again, snacks, snacks, duct tape, and some Titleist golf balls one more time, all right? This is Brent. What you notice is not on his bank account is windows for his car. The one thing he really needs, but doesn't value enough to get. So he shows it's not important to Brent, but golf certainly is, all right? So I thought, just so that I'm not picking on the, on the whole church, I'll show you my wife's one as well, okay? So this is my wife's. Active wear, active wear, active wear, active wear sweets. Active wear, active wear sneakers, active wear sweets. That's pretty much what she spends her money on. But now in contrast, let me show you mine. Everybody ready, right? This just shows what's important to you. ESV Bible, communion elements. That's just for me when I'm taking communion with my family at home. Bible commentary, worship music, tithes, coffee, 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 which is spiritual, a donation for charity, and active wear for wife, okay? Because I'm also generous towards my wife. <laughs> the point here today is that people think that they organize their financial lives by three big decisions that they've made. Oh, I made this decision to save some money. I made this decision to give some money. And I made this decision of how I'm going to spend my money. And that is basically the culture or my money lifestyle or the way that I conduct myself around finances. But the truth is that your financial lifestyle, your, your culture, your relationship with money, your worship isn't determined by three big decisions. It's determined by the 10,000 little decisions that you make every single day. Through those little decisions, we end up developing a culture that we bring into the big decisions. And so it's often just not just looking at the big things that you do with your finances, but what are all the little things that you do with it? What is the lifestyle that you've developed? What is the spirituality that you practice daily through the way that you spend your money? Because this reveals your trust in God. Isaiah 32 verse 8 says, a generous man devises generous plans and by generosity he shall stand. Isn't that beautiful? You see, when you're a generous person, that's not just a state of being. That's a state of action. If you are a generous person, then you will make plans to be generous and that generosity will be a testimony of your faith, a testimony of the way that you serve God. And so it's not unspiritual for us this morning to talk about money. In fact, it's something we should talk about all the time. We should know what the Bible says about this important area because it depicts where God lives in our existence. What is your street level relationship with God when it comes to money? Like when the rubber hits the road in, every day, in your everyday dealings, what is it that, that you uh, worship in terms of your finances? And so we'll never make proper sense of how we should conduct our affairs if we don't understand God's perspective on this. If we don't understand God's word on this, we won't be able to evaluate our relationship with money in, in any, in any uh, accurate way if it isn't for understanding God as the center of all these things. And so we need to recognize this morning that God is really not trying to get something 
from you. He's actually trying to get something to you. And more than that, he's trying to get something through you. God is trying to liberate us truly from the love of money, from the worship of money, so that we can live big, generous, influential, God-honoring lives, so that God can bring wealth into our lives knowing that it won't destroy us. If something is an idol in your life, why would God give you more of that idol? If it's something you worship, why would God give you greater opportunity to worship it? He knows it'll destroy your soul at the same time. But it's only when we become truly liberated from it that we can begin to enjoy what God has given us and use it to bless others. And so it's a shift in perspective that comes from your understanding of who God is and that all that we have is from Him. And so now I want to come to the big question. We've discussed this now for, for three weeks. This is our third week in the series. And the big question that everybody's kind of like, it's there the whole time. It's like, mm, we're going to come to it. When is it going to happen? Here's the big question that everybody has. It's like, enough talking about theology, pastor. What is this going to cost me? Right? <laughs> like, what, what amount should I give? What does it actually come down to at the end of the day? What should I give? It's what we really want to know at the end of the day. How much is this going to hurt? You know, what's the minimum buy-in here? Like, faithful, it's that amount. Good, I'm set, right? For many people, the, the question isn't how much should I give? It's how little can I give? Like, we, we reverse that a little bit. And, and it's because we've slowly conven convinced ourselves that, that, that giving is a duty. And so we just want to fulfill the bare requirement, the bare minimum requirement of the duty. And so, and so there's a lot of people that, that say that I, I don't necessarily follow a law of giving. I don't necessarily follow you know, any idea of giving in terms of percentages. I just give as I'm led because I'm just a generous, free willing kind of giver, the kind of giver that God wants. But, but then isn't it funny that those generous givers always give less than 10%. It's like God is a God of generosity. It's, a, it's about the generosity. But then when we give, it doesn't reflect that. It's always the bare minimum. What's the minimum buy-in? When it comes to answering this question, um, you know, there's two main camps. The first camp is the Malachi 3.10 camp. And these are scriptures that you've probably heard so many times that you could probably verbatim quote that scripture to me, Malachi 3.10. In case you're new to church, um, I'll, I'll share this little part. Bring the whole tithe. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So those are the Malachi 3, 10 camp people. They're like 10%, the tithe, 10% is what I give, right? Second Corinthians 9, 7 is the other camp. So the other camp says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So you've got the Malachi 3, 10, it's 10%, no more, no less. Right, like on the dot, to the red. You know, like actually when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, he spoke about how they were tithing off of their herbs and their spices. And none of you have brought like a little bit of paprika here on a Sunday. I've seen no mint, you know. I'm not talking about the coin. I haven't seen that, but you know, so there's, there's a way where you're like, I'm Malachi 310, baby, that's it. It's my 10% and, and the rest is mine. The other 90% is mine, but I'll give my 10% and I'll stand that off. And then there's the others who go, no, I'm just going to hear from the Spirit. Apparently the Spirit is very stingy. 
Because those people are like, I'm just going to hear from the Spirit. No, I'm not going to give today. I'm not going to give. No, God doesn't want that for me. Right? And so what is it? Do we give a 10%, do we give 10% of all we earn? A tithe, which is just what that word tithe means. just means 10%. Or another amount as we have decided in our hearts to give. Is one applicable only to the Old Testament where the tithe was instituted? And is the other one applicable for the New Testament as spirit-filled believers? How do we approach this? If the New Testament calls us for generosity beyond the law, then are we truly embodying that? Is this something that we can say that we do? Or do we, under grace, end up giving less than people who are under the law? Which really doesn't reflect the grace of God. It really doesn't affect, reflect somebody who has a genuine walk with Jesus at the end of the day. So let's go back to the origin of tithing, right? Let's go see where this all started. Some of you may have wondered about this. I'm sure many have had questions. We've received questions from many of you about this issue, right? Is it the law? Is it as we've decided in our hearts? Let's go back to it. It was only instituted as a law in the second year of Israel's journey through the wilderness. So only in that second year did God give the law of the tithe. Before that, people gave generously and they gave because their hearts were connected to their giving. It was a form of worship. And we'll look at that in a moment. But it's only in that moment in the wilderness, and for those of you that know the whole journey of Israel through the wilderness, it's in that time that God was shaping their identity as God's people. They had a slave mentality before in Egypt. They lost their understanding of being the chosen people through whom God would bring them the Messiah. And in the wilderness, in all of that wandering and in all of those journeys, God was actually reminding them that He was present with them. Through the pillar of, of fire by night and cloud by day, through the tabernacle in the wilderness, through all of these things, the manna coming from heaven, God was saying, I'm your provider. I will give you everything that you need. And as He was shaping them, He gave them the law to help reflect the fact that their relationship with their possessions, even when it came to the manna, they weren't allowed to take more than just for that day. Because if you start storing up, anything you store up will just be off by the day. In other words, you're trusting God for daily supply. And God was through that developing a people of faith, a people that trusted Him. And so in this moment, the law was there to show people uh, what God's standard would be, what a life that is truly submitted to God would look like if we were able to fulfill the law, what obedience would look like. But being sinful people, the law actually just creates rebellion. And so when God says, you must give 10% and it's a law and you have to do it, and we're like, I don't want to, because whenever somebody tells you you have to do something, like when your wife tells you to pick up your towel, like, no, I like it there. It's soft under my feet. And it's just because you were told. And so the law doesn't have the ability to change our hearts. But it showed us the bare minimum of the generosity that we would be able to walk in if we truly allowed God's grace to work in our lives. And so at that time, without that having been done, God was showing them, leading them towards that faith. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says it this way. It says, therefore, the, Lord, the, the law was our tutor, a teacher, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer 
under a tutor. In other words, the law shows us what we would naturally do if Jesus was present in our lives. But now after faith has come, after you have a relationship with Jesus, you no longer need the law to tell you how much to give. You no longer need an, a, a requirement of, of a certain percentage because through that relationship with Jesus, you'll be able to go far beyond that amount, right? And so it's, it's a little bit sad that as believers, we want to be led by the Spirit. As many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit in every area, but without giving, just give me the law. I just want a law, and it's a requirement, and if I don't do it, I'm robbing God. Again, referring to Malachi. People don't want to be led by the Spirit in their finances. Because what if the Spirit says 15%? What if the Spirit says more than that? What if the Spirit says, it's, it's, it's time that I want you to give everything you have? And so we, we sidestep the Holy Spirit in this area. And we go, no, I'm just going to give according to the law. But that is not the kind of giving that God desires. He wants your heart to be connected to it. It's an act of faith. It's a recognition of God as our provider. And it's one of the reasons why Jesus upheld the value of tithing. Jesus didn't have an issue with tithing. He just had an issue when you were doing that, not embodying a true relationship with God. So in Luke 11 verse 42, Jesus says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. So they were so specific about, you know, keeping the tithe, but then it's like swallowing gnats it's, or, or straining gnats and swallowing camels. They, 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 all the little things they do, but then the big things they neglect. But Jesus says this, he says, these you ought to have done. So Jesus doesn't knock the giving of 10%. He doesn't knock their tithing. He just says, you've got to do that without neglecting the others. In other words, it comes as a natural part of your relationship with God. That's what it should be. That's the ultimate. That's what God wants for us. That's the heart that God wants us to have. Cheerful, intentional, faithful givers. Not religious giving. Not just going through the motions. Not just duty. And so we encourage you to engage your faith. To see this as part of your relationship with God. As a practice in trusting Him. And believing in Him for, to meet all of your needs. God gave us that, that opportunity to lead our hearts and saying, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we can lead our hearts in this area. And so that's, you know, the difference between the tithe as a requirement under the law and the tithe as a decision to honor God because you trust in Him. That, there's a big difference there. And with all of the keeping of the law, Jesus had an issue with those who honor Him with their lips but deny them in their hearts. These, they, they, they worship me, but their hearts are far from me, Jesus said. And that's not what we want to be in our giving. In Genesis 14, verse 17, we're going to back this up like 600 years before the tithe was instituted, before that, that law around the tithe was given. We're going to back this up 600 years. And, and Abraham goes into war uh, against Shedeloma, king of Edom. And in Genesis 14, verse 17, he gets the victory. It says this, it says, After his return from the defeat of Shedeloma and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, which means peace, brought out bread and wine. 
He was a priest of God most high. So Melchizedek is this type of Jesus that meets Abraham in this valley and, and he was recognized as a high priest forever. And Jesus is seen as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, an eternal high priest, not somebody who earned it or worked for it, but as, as a matter of, of who he is. And so it says that this Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. God is the one who possesses it all. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. It's God who has given you the victory. And look what Abraham does. He gave him a tenth of everything. There's no law. There's no Mosaic law at this point. There's nothing that says that Abraham should do that. He's just gone in and fought the battle himself. You know, that's part of the reason why we don't give. Because we go into our workplaces, we go into our everyday lives, we go into all these things, we go, I earned my money. It cost me time, it cost me effort, it cost me petrol, it cost me all these things, and so the money is mine. I got the victory in this area because of what I've done. It just shows how we've slowly begun to put ourselves in the center of our own universe. But what this shows us, if we could meet with God, God says, I'm the one who gave you the victory. Abraham fought an actual battle. It was a real battle. But God says, I'm the one who in that battle gave you victory. I'm the possessor of all things. And so as a recognition that everything that we have belongs to God, comes from God, that He's our provider, not our own ability to fight the battle, but His presence and grace with us gives us the ability to produce wealth. We go, God, You are my provider. And because of your faithfulness to me, I would want nothing more than to worship you. And that's actually why the tithe in the Old Testament, that 10 represented all. It was a representation of all, which is why Abraham immediately gives a tenth of everything. In Hebrews, it says in Hebrews 7 verse 1 to 3 and verse 8, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God. He continues a priest forever. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, so even if you give a tithe here at Anchor Church, it's received by a human institution, an organization, and, and the leaders of this church. And we have the responsibility of being good stewards. In one case, it's received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified, testified that he lives. And so you might feel like you're giving to the church, but you're really giving to God. You really are giving to Jesus. This is his body. And his mission and his purposes, and when the things that are important to God become important to us, we begin to partner with God in a way that allows us to be a part of his supply chain, to share in the blessing, and to truly worship God because his values have become our values. We reflect that through our bank statements. We reflect that through our giving. And so I love the fact that as we give to Jesus, there's there's, he is known as the king of righteousness. Seek first his righteousness. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things 
will be added to you. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now I know, and, and you know, we come down to a human level here. Many of us don't have peace in our lives and it's because of what's happening in our financial world. I've been there. We've, over, we've all overcommitted. We've all stretched ourselves. We've all made bad decisions and it hurts. But oftentimes it betrays something that's happening in our hearts where we feel we need those things. And that's where God wants to set us free through worship, set us free through generosity. Abraham's giving to Melchizedek and Melchizedek's receiving of the tithe reveals something more than the law. This was before the law. It's a recognition of God. It's a statement of faith. It's a worshipful declaration. It's generosity as a result of gratitude. Gratitude overflows into generosity. The main issue in the church of Corinth was the issue of pride. They were prideful. It was all about them. Generosity is the antidote to pride. It's when we say it's no longer about me. It's not about how much can I keep for myself, but how much can I give? How much can I be a part of God's journey? And so if you want to be free from the love of money, which we saw last week is the root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of strife, then trust God as your provider. The moment you do that, the moment you see that provision in Him, you're not going to be precious about money. You're going to be able to give it away, be generous, serve others, do whatever God calls you to do because you'll be truly free. This shows us that we're going to have a tough time if we truly are engaged with God, if we truly have a relationship with Him, if we truly trust in Him, we're going to have a tough time moving from the 10% required under the law to some menial amount. And that's where we have to ask ourselves what God is calling us to. The point is this. The idea here today is not to condemn or judge anyone according to what they give. That's between you and God. Our heart as a church is simply to help disciple you be, to become a truer worshiper. Somebody who more thoroughly and genuinely and authentically trusts in God so that you can grow in your walk of faith. And this is one of the most practical areas in which we can practice that. In fact, it's the only place in the Bible where God says, you can test me. Test me in this. The only place in all of Scripture where God says that. We know the famous words of Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness and, and when Satan came to him and said that he should throw himself off the temple because surely God will uh, command his angels concerning you. And Jesus replies in Luke 4 verse 12. And he says this, and Jesus answered him and said, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The Amplified uh, translation says to prove himself to you. You know, how many of us feel like we need to manipulate God into proving Himself to us? So it's coming from a lack of faith. And we say, okay, God, if you're real, I'm going to run out in traffic. And, and if you're real, you'll save me. It's like manipulating God. And some people, with their giving, they feel like we need to manipulate God into blessing us. But that's not what giving is about. We don't manipulate God into giving. We, we don't test Him in that way. Okay, God, let's see if you're real. No, this type of testing is different that we read about in Malachi 3.10. God says something that seems contradictory to, to Israel. 
He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. It has practical purposes. And thereby, God says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This, this is a, a statement of faith. Why is this different? Because what God is calling Israel to in this passage is more than mandatory law-required giving. He's calling them to trust in Him. This is an invitation. And, and, and the one place where God says, just give it a go. I invite you to trust me in this area and see if I will not come through for you. See if I will not provide for you. See if I will not take care of you. See if I will not bless you. If I would not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you. This is what God invites us to discover. That he truly is our provider. That he truly is the one who takes care of us. Do you believe that this morning? Or is that just something that we tick on a box if it's asked? God is inviting us to go on a deeper journey with Him. So is it the tithe or is it what we've decided in our hearts? I love what C.S. Lewis says about it. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. There's no exact figure that we can give you today. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. That's how you know you're truly giving. If it hurts a little bit, then it's a real sacrifice something that you're really offering up. I just wanted to conclude by reading a short passage, a short excerpt from Charles Spurgeon's message on this that he preached on the 3rd of March, 1901. It was called Christ's Poverty, Our Riches. And Charles Spurgeon goes into giving. And I, I couldn't summarize this. I couldn't make it any better. So I thought I'd just read it to you as we close today. He says this. I says, I remember hearing somebody say, I would like to know exactly how much I ought to give. <laughs> Yes, dear friend, no doubt you would. But you are not under a system similar to that by which the Jews were obliged to pay tithes to the priests. If there were any such rule laid down in the gospel, it would destroy the beauty of spontaneous giving and take away all the bloom from the fruit of your liberality. There is no law to tell me what I should give my father on his birthday. There is no rule laid down in any law book to decide what present a husband should give to his wife. It could be active wear. Nor what token of affection we should bestow on others whom we love. No, the gift must be a free one or it has lost all of its sweetness. Can you think about your giving as a sweet gift to God? Yes, the, yet the absence of law and rule does not mean that you are therefore to give less than the Jews did, but rather that you shall give more. Because if I rightly understand what is implied in the term Christian liberality. It is to be according to the example of Christ himself. Our text really gives the Christian law of, of liberality. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for, our, for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. That is to say we should give as we love. You know how much our Lord Jesus Christ loved by knowing how much he gave. He gave himself for us because he loved us with all the force and energy of his nature. Why did that woman break the alabaster box and pour this precious ointment upon Christ's head when it might have been sold for much and the money given to the poor or when she might have kept her ointment for herself? 
She gave much because she loved much. I commend that rule to you. Give as you love and measure your love by your gift. Further, this also seems to be the teaching of the text. Give till you feel it. For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was proven by the fact that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He gave till he felt it. Gave till he knew that he was giving all that he had. And I do verily believe that, that, that the great sweetness of giving to God begins when we feel the pinch, when we have to deny ourselves in order that we may give. Then it is that there is the true spirit of Christian liberality. Our Lord Jesus Christ gets from a good many people what they would not dare to keep back from him and that they can readily enough part with. It is sometimes about as much as their shoestrings cost them in a year. Certainly not as much as they spend upon the smallest of their many luxuries. Yet the most of them consider that they have done all that they should do when such insignificant offerings have been laid at their Lord's feet. But dear friends, I hope that it will be your rule both to give as you love and to give as you, till you feel it. Finally, and next, we should in some sense give all because that is the meaning of the text. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He emptied himself. He gave all that he had. And we as Christians are bound to confess that we belong to Christ and that all we possess is to be used by us as stewards under him, not reckoning anything to be our own, but gladly admitting that he has entrusted it all to us to be used prudently, wisely, and discreetly for his glory. Oh, that we all came to this standard. Then we should have the great pattern and model of Christian liberality reproduced in ourselves far more largely than it is at present. That's a lot. You can go and re-listen to this recording after the service. But how beautiful, the sweetness of the gift. Give as much as you love. Give as until the point where you actually feel your giving. And in many ways, give it all. Because ultimately, all we have belongs to Jesus. It's important that we begin trusting God in this vital area of our lives as a normal part of our discipleship and a, an important part of our worship. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand this morning? I'd love to pray for you.